right, well, if you've got Bibles, you can turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. And while you are turning there, um, there's a couple things to kind of note before we uh, dive in to some of the specific themes that we're going to see in Ecclesiastes. Um, A couple things, you know, we have been studying wisdom literature over the course of the last several weeks and what we see in wisdom literature in the Bible. And when we think about wisdom literature, we think of typically kind of what Tyson reminded us of last week, right? The ability to, to live well, how we navigate life uh, in, a, in, a, in a good way. Or as an Old Testament professor that I had in college named Dr. Wilbanks used to say, he defined it as the ability to live with skill, right? That's what we normally think of But when we turn to Ecclesiastes, we get less about that sort of wisdom of how we ought to live, and we start to dive into more of the thoughts and feelings of a preacher who's trying to figure out what is the meaning of life in general? Where is it found, and what am I supposed to do when I know what it is? this searching for uh, the meaning of life, the purpose. And uh, that's kind of what we start to get in in the book of Ecclesiastes. And then the next thing that we want to think of when we we start to talk about Ecclesiastes in order to really help us kind of get a a better understanding is is authorship, right? We don't necessarily know uh, Ecclesiastes. There are the common and traditional thought is that it is... Solomon, um, and then there's also some thought to the fact that maybe these are some of the, the sayings and thoughts of Solomon, and someone maybe edited this later. Um, for the purpose of us tonight, I think it's helpful who most dance. My personal opinion being that it is Solomon who most likely wrote this, and I'm going to give you guys my case why before we get started. And anytime we start to try to ask questions like this, I always find that the most convincing arguments and the most helpful things are the biblical evidence. What is the Bible, where is the Bible leading us to think when we talk about something like this? So if you look in Ecclesiastes for a second, some things to help us maybe point us in the direction that this is Solomon who's speaking to us. And the first thing is right there in uh, verse 1-1, right? The words of the preacher, that's how this writer refers to himself, the preacher or uh, Koheleth in Hebrew. Um, The son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, when we hear the son of David, king in Jerusalem, I think everybody in the room, Solomon's the first name that comes to our minds, right? So, 1-1 1-1 kind of leads us in that direction. 1-12, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. In, there are very few people who meet the criteria of both being a son of David and a king in, in Jerusalem while being king of Israel before the nation split, right? So another little bit of biblical evidence to point us in the direction of Solomon. And then there's some more things here. So in chapter two, verses four through six, you don't have to turn there yet. We will be there eventually. Gardens, and it says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. So this is the, the, the preacher telling us about some things that he did. And we have a lot of parallels here 
specifically in 1 Kings, to works that Solomon did, where he built things, right? He did a lot of things that are connected here. And then still in chapter 2, verses 7 through 9, we get that I had male and female slaves. I had great possessions, herds, and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. Right? These are riches and possessions. And we see a parallel here in 1 Kings as well. Solomon had all these things too. Right? These are things that were uh, characteristic of him. And then at the very end of Ecclesiastes in chapter 12, in verse 9, it says, Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. Now, when I hope you hear, when you hear that, I hope that you're thinking, wow, we just read some of those last week, right? These are things that seem to point us, biblical evidence that seems to point us in the direction of Solomon being the author of the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, it's not necessarily wrong to disagree with that, but that is seemingly where I think the biblical evidence points us, and so it is convincing for me. One of the things that I tell our students all the time is when you have questions of the Bible, you keep reading and it might answer those questions for you, and typically the biblical evidence is what is most convincing. And so I think that's the argument for Solomon being the author here. And the last thing before we start studying the, the themes that I want us to know and see tonight from the book of Ecclesiastes that I think are critical for us to understand the book is a couple of words or phrases. As you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, these are the things that you're going to hear the most. The first one is the word vanity. That is pretty much the word of Ecclesiastes, vanity. And that word uh, essentially is translated as meaningless, worthless, empty, right? It's pointless. We have a lot of phrases that are words that would kind of correlate to the word vanity, but it, like when he says that all is vanity, he means that all of this is meaningless. All of this is pointless. It is empty. It is unsatisfactory. Whatever word you want to use there, that's what we're getting there with the word vanity. And then we have two other phrases. One is striving after the wind, right? Striving after the wind being pointless, when you try to chase the wind or you try to catch the wind, that is a, uh, a uh, task that you will not succeed in, right? So that's kind of the phrase that we get there. And then the last one is under the sun. Under the sun. And when the author uses this phrase, what he's talking about is life in this world. Right here. The lives that you and I live in the world, that is what is under the sun. Anything under the sun is anything in this life right here, right now. So those things are very important for us to study as we dive into the book. So uh, we'll start with how the preacher starts. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. This is chapter one. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does, man, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. 
What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things, yet to be among those who come after. Well, I know you all heard, came to hear the good news of Ecclesiastes, uh, but the truth of Ecclesiastes, right, did we really get to the good news, you need to understand that he's, he's got bad news, right? This is a, an a author, a preacher who is in turmoil. He is in a place where, as you heard him say in verse two, everything is pointless, everything is meaningless, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. He is in a depression state. So, where do we go? The first thing that you all need to see, and when it comes to Ecclesiastes, the first thing you need to know is that this preacher and author is describing for us his personal search for happiness and meaning or purpose, right? This is his problem. This is why he thinks everything is meaningless. He is searching for happiness and purpose, and he has not found it. And he gives us some things that he, where he has looked. He gives us some insight as to where he has looked for happiness and for meaning and for purpose. And if you're taking notes, there are three things that I want us to look at, three places where he looks for happiness and purpose and he cannot find it. And the first one is in wisdom. <clears throat> this is in chapter one. Starting in verse 12, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this is also but a striving after wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So the first place he goes to try to find happiness, to find purpose, is wisdom, and he doesn't find it there. And he gives us two reasons why. The first one is that wisdom in a lot of ways leads to vexation or more frustration, right? That's what he says here in verse 18. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow, right? There is a sense in which growing in wisdom or knowledge brings us more awareness to the depravity and the issues of a broken world. The more we learn, the more we seem to find out that things are not right. The more we learn, the more we find out, wow, something is really wrong here. We see this in the, uh, in the lives of our children, right? Your children have probably asked you a question and your response in your head may be, I don't think you wanna know. Why do you think that? Well, because you know that if they know, they're actually gonna grow in sadness or frustration, right? Sometimes wisdom or knowledge brings us greater frustration with the way the world is. And that's where the preacher has found himself. His increase in knowledge and wisdom has actually only increased his, what he calls vexation, 
or his agitation or his sorrow because he realizes just how bad things are. And the second reason he gives us that wisdom is vanity is because wisdom doesn't change the reality of the broken world. In verse 15, he told us, what is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. He's kind of come to the point where all the wisdom in the world does not change the reality of the world's brokenness. It can't fix it. He can't fix it in all his knowledge. We're living in an age in which we actually have more knowledge about illness and diseases and cancers than we have ever had in the history of the world. And yet, we cannot seem to fix the problem of illness and disease and uh, sickness, right? We, we can't seem to, to fix that. And the reality is, is because all the wisdom in the world will not fix a broken world, a world cursed under sin. We can increase in knowledge all we want, but sin will run rampant in a cursed world and we can't fix it. And so with those two things in mind, the preacher says, all of this is vanity. This increase in wisdom, this search for knowledge has left me dissatisfied and empty because this world is still broken and I still can't fix it. He leaves dissatisfied. He has another place where he looks and you can turn to Ecclesiastes chapter five. He talks about wealth, right? Perhaps money can solve the problem, but the preacher seems to think and tell us that that is also going to be vanity or a striving after wind. So in in chapter five, starting in verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase those who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, and naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness in much vexation and sickness and anger. Here, right, there is vanity of wisdom and then there's a vanity of wealth. And he kind of gives us two different things here, right? There is vanity in having money. So he gives us that in verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied nor he who loves wealth with his his income. This is also vanity. Uh, I don't know that this is where he got that, but there was uh, a famous secular rapper who once said, more money, more problems. I don't know that he ever read the book of Ecclesiastes, but he was spot on. The more one increases in wealth, the more problems he has, right? And the more who loves money, the more he is never satisfied with it. On this issue, John D. Rockefeller was asked how much money is enough? And this is one of the most famous people and richest people in the history of the world. And his answer was, 
just a little bit more, right? The desire and love for money, if we're not content, is, will never go away. There's always the need for just a little bit more. <clears throat> and to coincide with that, we'll find that the more money, the less rest, right? Look in verse 12. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is seemingly no rest for the one who is rich. Perhaps that's because he worries over his financial status because he has much. Perhaps he doesn't do the work of a laborer and so he tosses and turns. I think either way, <clears throat> the preacher has made it clear that there's more problems that come with wealth than answers. And so there's vanity there. And the second vanity when it comes to money is the vanity in losing it, right? <clears throat> so in verse, and lost through 14, we get this example of a man who had much and lost that money in a venture, maybe an investment of some kind, and he lost it all. And this is the preacher's way of reminding us that our possessions, our money, our wealth, whatever you want to call that, it is so easily gone, taken away in a moment's notice because no one really knows what will happen in life. And so chasing after purpose and satisfaction and wealth, it's vanity. It's so easily gone. And the second way is, he says in verse uh, 16, he makes that very clear. And in 15 and 16, you cannot take it with you. Despite what we have seen in history where kings in Egypt were buried with their possessions, those possessions were still there when their bodies were found, right? They cannot take it with them. And so Koheleth, the preacher, reminds us that's vanity. Wealth and possessions in this life, they're vanity. Well, he searched for, he searched for uh, happiness and purpose in another way, and we would define that as maybe pleasure, right, or things that we enjoy. You can turn back to chapter 2 here, <clears throat> and starting in verse 1, he says this. When he can't find it in wisdom, he says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself, but behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, is it mad? And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold, sons of man, kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines and the delights of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. But then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expanded in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing 
to be gained under the sun. So there's a vanity in wisdom, there's a vanity in wealth, and there's a vanity in pleasure. So seeking to satisfy our hearts in the worldly things that we enjoy will only lead to emptiness. You heard it from one of the most wealthiest men in history in Solomon. All of that brought him nothing. And he tried it all when it comes to what we would consider maybe pleasure or enjoyment or good things. He tried it in partying. He tried it in, in the work of his hands in building great things, right? He said it, he defined it as I kept my heart from no pleasure. Anything he liked, anything he enjoyed, he partook of it. And then he said he looked in his hands and there was nothing. You probably have heard the phrase, you work hard to play hard, right? You work hard so you can play hard. What the preacher seems to find is that both of those, if that's where you're looking for happiness and satisfaction, will leave you empty. Your work will not satisfy you. What you do when it comes to play and enjoyment in life, if it is your, if it is your satisfaction, if it is where you're finding purpose, it'll leave you empty there too. See, some of the things that he did are not inherently bad, building houses and the like, but we cannot find our happiness, purpose, or satisfaction in them. It will leave us empty. <clears throat> you all have probably heard of C.S. Lewis before. I think he writes on this issue incredibly well in his Learn to Look in Christianity. Listen to what he says here. Most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they that they do want, and want acutely, something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love, or first think of visiting some foreign country, or first take up a subject that excites us, they are longings which no marriage, travel, or learning can really satisfy. There was something that we grasped at in that first moment of longing, yet which faded away in the reality, right? Even in the good things of life that we think we will find purpose and satisfaction in, in that moment of longing, yet when we do it or achieve it, we'll find ourselves saying what Koheleth tells us in verse 11, that when I considered all that my hands had done, all was vanity and a striving after wind. So we're confronted with the problem of, of Koheleth, of the preacher, that he's searching for happiness and meaning and purpose, and he cannot seem to find it anywhere under the sun, anywhere in this life. But his theology isn't really all bad. There's a second theme here in the book of Ecclesiastes that we need to notice, and that is that he does have a knowledge of something about God that's really important for us to notice, and that is that he understands the sovereignty of God. Look at chapter three here, because in the depth of his misery, after talking about striving for happiness and pleasure, or happiness and satisfaction and pleasure and wisdom and wealth, he says this, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace away and to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, 
a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to the end. So in the depth of his misery and frustration, he reminds us, you would think he would go further into that hole of depression, but he reminds us here in chapter three that God is in complete control. He is the one who controls the very details of our lives, right? He is the one who provides a time for birth and a time for death, a time for mourning and a time for laughing, a time for dancing, or sorry, weeping and laughing, mourning and dancing, right? A time to love and to hate, a time to seek and to lose. All these things giving us the idea that God is involved intricately in the details of our lives and the preacher seems to know that. He's gonna say this in a lot of other places, but he knows that God is in the control of his life. He also knows that it's God who has caused his heart to function the way that it does. Look at what he says in verse 11 when he says that he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to the end. So he has caused him to feel that way to think that way. He's put eternity in his heart. The reason he's contemplating these things is because God has made his heart that way. But he also knows this, and he says this in chapter eight, that for all he knows that God is in control, he also knows that he'll never fully understand what God is doing. This is what he says in chapter eight. There is a vanity that takes whom it happens that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity, and I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun, right? God is the one who gives him these days. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking it, he will not find it out, even though a wise man claims to know he can find it out. He realizes that he will never really know what God is doing as he works intricately in the details of life. I hope this reminds you of someone else from wisdom literature, good things happening to bad people, bad things seemingly happening to good people, and trying to rectify that situation. It should remind you of Job. We're not too far removed from our series there, right? This is what we hear from the words of Job right after he has been attacked, both his possessions and family, and then his own body. Right after his wife tells him that, why are you still holding fast to your integrity, right? You should curse God and die. And he says, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive from God the good and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And it seems like the preacher has found himself in the same position. He is trying to work through these two truths that we've found ourselves in, that he cannot seem to find happiness in anything under the sun Wealth, wisdom, pleasure, none of it's working. 
And yet he knows that God is in, completely con- in complete control of everything in life. This is what we get as we kind of read through Ecclesiastes. He's trying to, f- how do these things go together, right? Knowing that there's a brokenness of the world and yet knowing that he's in complete control, what am I supposed to do? <clears throat> this seems like vanity, a chasing after wind. <clears throat> well, we couldn't read the whole book, so I'm gonna have to just summarize it for you here. He gives us an answer on what we should do. You can turn to the end here in chapter 12. And knowing this, he's confronted with this dilemma. And this is what he says at the end of the book, chapter 12, verse 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. He has gone on and on about what is vain about life, but in, in the same time, he's been giving us hints over and over that God is in complete control of all things. And this is his conclusion. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. You see, when confronted with this dilemma, the preacher gives us the typical biblical answer in his own words. He needs God. When confronted with the truth of his problem, he realizes that he needs God. And he tells us the answer in two different ways. One, fear God. This should remind us of something that Tyson told us last week in Proverbs. I think it also points to Solomon in Proverbs 1, 7, right? That fear of God is the beginning of knowledge, right? We have to understand who God is and who we are in relation to him. That is how we begin with the fear of God, right? When we start to understand that God is in complete control of all things and yet we are broken, that leads us to a fear of God, or at least it should, And Koheleth has been telling his readers this throughout the book. I won't go there because we don't really have time, but in 314, 5-7, 7-14, and 8-12, he's been telling us that it goes well with people who fear the Lord, that this fear of the Lord should be driving the way we live. And the second thing he says is that we we are to keep his commandments, right? For this is the whole duty of man. We are created and called to worship and follow God. That is our purpose. And it is the conclusion that the preacher has come to after trying to find satisfaction and happiness in everything else, he comes to the conclusion that there is really only meaning in fearing God and following his commandments. You read it, we read it in our call to worship and I actually taught on it on Wednesday night in youth so it just... And God's sovereignty worked out really well that way. But Jesus kind of talks about this a little bit too, right? What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul, right? Life is not about these things under the sun, the things that we can obtain, whether it's wisdom or wealth or otherwise. It's about God. Our need for him, our need to worship him, and our need to follow him. And the book of Ecclesiastes for a little application for us, not just for the readers back in the day of Ecclesiastes, but for believers now, right? It gives a greater urgency to the modern believer, right? There is a world, country, city of people around us who are really looking for meaning and purpose in all the things that the preacher here has described. And it will not be found there. 
And yet for those of us in the room who truly believe and follow Jesus, we have the answer to their problem. They need to know that happiness and purpose cannot be found under the sun. That's all vanity. But as New Testament believers, we know that the book of Ecclesiastes ought to remind us of what is most important in this life, and that is Jesus and enjoyment in God. And it ought to motivate us to tell others where real life can be found. Real life is found in the fear of God and following his commandments. The problem with all the things that the preacher lists as vanity is that they won't just leave us them will ossified in this life, but putting in our hope in or putting our hope in them will also leave us separated from God in the next. Right? These are eternal issues. They don't just leave us dissatisfied here; they leave us satis- They leave us sorry separated from God in eternity. The problems are actually greater than what the preacher is speaking on here in Ecclesiastes. And as we as New Testament believers, we know that. They won't just leave us dissatisfied, they will leave us separated eternally from God if that's where our hope is. Ecclesiastes kind of pushes us to boldly proclaim that life's not just found under the sun, and this may be a cheesy way to put it, uh, but as I was thinking through it, life's not found under the sun, S-U-N, it's found in the sun, S-O-N, right? This is the only way that we find happiness and fulfillment in this life and in eternity. And we know that as New Testament believers, our fulfillment is not found in those things, it's found in Jesus. And the things that we do for God in worshiping him and following him now, they have real meaning. The things that the preacher was searching for left him with no purpose or meaning. The things we do for God have meaning. They have purpose. They truly matter. I can leave us with uh, a closing illustration. I told you all earlier when I was thinking about things that were really good for us this weekend, the help that we had, we obviously moved over the weekend. And uh, if there's anything that will leave you thinking that all is vanity, it is moving. Um, And as as we were packing things up, I, I packed away a small picture frame that we have had, Emily and I have had since we got married. And it has a, a pretty famous uh, quote in it, and it just says that there's only one life will soon be passed. Only what is done for Christ will last, right? The preacher searched and searched and searched for things under the sun that would find satisfying and come to this comparison that really mattered, and he could not find it. But he did come to this conclusion that fearing God and following his commandments, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus as New Testament believers do as we follow God now, that's what life is really about. And it will bring us satisfaction in this life under the sun and it will lead us into eternity with the God who loves us when we die. It will matter and it will last. Let's pray. God, thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes. God, there is good news to be found there, and it is that life is about God, fearing him and keeping his commandments. God, perhaps there's no other, uh, there's no better message we can hear other than we need God. In order for there to be good news, we have to hear the bad news, and that is that we are in desperate need of you in Ecclesiastes pushes us that way and reminds us that it will be found 
nowhere else. Life will be found nowhere else. I pray that our hearts would know and believe that as they are so easily tempted to find happiness somewhere else. God, may you keep us as a church focused on fearing you, worshiping you, and following you. God, we love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.